This podcast is about the effect of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences on neural development, and how to develop positive neural connections, overcome long-term traumas, and restart later in life as mature adults. Um, I have had many positive conversations with Dr. Brian Kolb, an award-winning neuropsychologist in Canada. I've had the privilege of getting to know Brian through classes and independent studies. He is a pioneer of neuroscience, and I'm happy to introduce him as today's guest. Hello, Brian. Hello, Roger. <laughs> uh, thank you for doing this interview on the podcast. This is my first interview. Um, could you start by sharing a few details about yourself, like what you do, who you are, some credentials, and how you became interested in neuroscience? Sure. So I grew up in Calgary. Um, a long time ago. And um, when I went to the University of Alberta at Calgary, which is what it was called in those days, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just was going to go to university and take stuff and, and I did. And at one point I thought maybe, maybe I'll go into law school, but I didn't really know what lawyers did. Um, and then I, a um, teaching assistant asked me um, in my second year if I wanted to uh, have a job working in a lab. Well, I didn't know what a lab was. So I said, sure, why not? And uh, um, her name was Karen Augustin. And so um, I started and it was quite interesting. So I was uh, doing statistical analysis at first and then later was doing um, some experiments with rats. I was still didn't see this as a career. I just didn't know what I was going to do. But eventually over time, I became fascinated and. Uh, decided um, that I would go to graduate school and, and uh, do animal behavior because the animals were so interesting. So I, I did and I, I was accepted at the university. Now it's called the University of Calgary uh, by this time and um, started working with uh, rodents. So squirrels, chipmunks and rats. You have to remember this was in 1968. So the questions we were asking now seem kind of silly, but the questions were related to the way in which animals learn. So I was doing studies on learning and the three species comparing them and so on. As I went along, I began to think this might not be a career. Uh, and while it was fascinating, um, it struck me that it was the brain that was driving all of this. Maybe I should shift and start um, doing brain work. So when I, I went to Penn State to do my PhD, I started um, looking at brain and doing um, brain-related experiments. Now, uh, one thing led to another, and so I ended up um, looking at the organization of the cortex of the rat, which today seems like an odd thing. Everybody should know today that it's organized very similar to ours, but I can tell you in 1970, people didn't believe that. Uh, they thought the human brains were special and they were totally different, and there was little point in studying animals like rats or mice. But as time went on, we became it became clear that they're uh, very similar in the general organization. So um, uh, when I finished the PhD there at Penn State, I went to Western Ontario and did work in electrophysiology. And then one of the, wasn't intentional, but one of the best moves I ever made was going to the Montreal Neurological Institute to study humans with brain injuries. And that totally changed uh, my life because now I began to realize uh, that the things you see in rats and cats and other lab animals are very similar to what you see in people in terms of symptoms. You just got to think broadly on this. And then I um, 
my wife and I decided we would really like to move back to Alberta. So um, there was a job in Alberta, University of Alberta, and one at the University of Lethbridge. So I applied for them and actually got them both. And um, being raised in Calgary, going to Edmonton wasn't my first choice. Um, so uh, I ended up in Lethbridge, although I have to say I'd never been to Lethbridge before I interviewed. Um, and I've been at the University of Lethbridge for 45 years. Wow. Yeah, I've been there a while. Yeah. Um, one of the positives was that a longtime friend, Ian Wishaw, was at the University of Lethbridge. I'd met him when I was in first year university. He oh. was in about sixth, sixth year university, I think. Um, but we were in the same statistics class, sat beside one another. So I kind of got to know him, but he didn't seem older. I didn't had no idea he was that much older <laughs> at that time. So um, we were able to collaborate and we have for 45 years. And one of the big things was when I was at the uh, MNI, I remember asking the graduate students, what do you read about the human brain? Because I don't know anything about it. I just know about animal brains. And they said, there's nothing to read. And I said, there's a whole library full of books. Hmm. Uh, they said, yeah, but you, you find something that tells you how the human brain works. And so I thought, well, this is silly. So um, I decided the way you learn how something works is you teach it. And so I thought I'll make up a course called Human Neuropsychology. And I did. And I went to see um, the chair of psychology, um, Peter Milner, and said, I'd like to teach this course. He thought it was hilarious. There's mm -hmm. no such field. No student would take this course. And um, I said, oh, how many students would you need? And he said, six. Uh, you could have a seminar with six. And so I said, oh, well, let's try it uh, next fall. Meanwhile, I thought I was right. So I had sent the course outline all over the place. And that's ended up with me getting the uh, interviews. Um, and so when I decided I was going to Lethbridge, I went and saw Peter Milner and said, well, you can forget about the course because I won't be here. And he says, no, you can't go anywhere. And I said, why? He said, 175 students signed up for the course. Wow. And yes. He knew I was right. Yeah. He taught brain and behavior and would typically get 20 at McGill. So this was students who were really interested in human brains, not in rat brains. And so uh, that was the beginning of the human neuropsychology course. It was the first one I think anywhere. When I got to Lethbridge, I convinced uh, Ian to help me write the textbook, which uh, was probably stupid in hindsight, because who was I at 28 to start writing textbooks? And anyway, I just thought, well, we'll write one and we can use it for the course. And we've just cool. finished the eighth edition of this book uh, 45 years later. So uh, it turned out to be a wise, wise thing. Yeah, so that's my cool. story. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> True story. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. So you've like kind of investigated it on your own, really. It was your own curiosity that like drove that that search into it, the start of the research. So basically in that way, I think you became the pioneer of neuroscience as a field to study, right? Because it didn't seem like there one were- of the Yeah, one of the, one of the pioneers, that's right. Um, that's pretty cool. Did you ever go back and be like, I told you so? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> no, didn't really feel the need to. Um, just yeah. so you know, the, the one prank that I had pulled on you where I put pencil crayons and replaced all your pens with bright colored uh, pencil crayons, yep. it was Ian that uh, provided those cheerful colors for me. <laughs> no doubt. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so we got quite a good chuckle out of that. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, wow, that's awesome. And so 
since then, since you've started writing textbooks at the age of 28, I mean, how many people can say that? Um, you've won some awards, right, since then and some recognition. Do you want to talk about some of those rewards? I know I've seen some of your bling. Um, well, I'll, I'll just mention two. So, um, I mean, yeah, there are quite a few. Uh, one was being elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, which is um, supposedly prestigious, though most people have never heard of it uh, outside of academia, but it, it was a big deal. But the bigger deal, I think, was being appointed an officer of the Order of Canada, and people do know what that is. Uh, I was dumbfounded at that. Uh, I certainly wasn't expecting uh, that, and you usually think about that going to really famous people. And I, I was on on the plane. I had you know I had the pin on, and this guy was sitting beside me. And he says, "Oh, who are you?" And I told him. I said, "Well, it won't make any difference." And he said, well, if you're an order of Canada, I said, yeah, but I'm a scientist. And, and I told him, he said, oh, okay. Uh, oh, oh, no. <laughs> uh, but he, he said he worked for CDC and he looked me up and I said, okay, go ahead. I'm in Wikipedia, you can look it up. Huh. Um, so I guess those two awards, I have, you know, several honorary degrees and so on, which are pretty neat. But um, yeah. I would say those two, two are, are the They're pretty spectacular. That'd be the most, yeah. Yeah, I was pretty happy when you brought the the order like that so I could look at it because that was pretty neat. So that's the bling that I'm kind of talking about. I have not looked you up on Wikipedia, although <laughs> after this interview, I might just try it and see what's out there. <laughs> um, I didn't write, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> I might add a little comment. I appreciate bright colored pencil crayons. Um, okay, and so that's how you also became interested in neuroscience too. So I guess, um, a couple of questions might be like, how, how have you um, really helped a lot of people? Like what's the greatest kind of help you've done? I know, I know you've helped a lot of people, but there are listeners out there who don't know. And so using neuroscience and the research you've done and a lot of work in a lot of years, right? Like what's the greatest help that's come out of it that you feel? Well, I think one of the big things is we've learned that behavior changes the brain and the brain changes behavior, it works both ways. And so if you have some sort of brain injury, such as a stroke, uh, what you need to do is design behavioral treatments that we know would actually alter the structure of the brain. So most treatments, for example, for stroke are by hunch and, hunch and habit, they're not based on research really. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to design, uh, design treatments that were empirically based, but they were based on studies we had done in in our animals and others. Now, in the course of doing this, uh, we also got very interested in the effects of experience uh, throughout life and particularly uh, during brain development. And so I got involved with the uh, Canadian Institute for Advanced Research program on uh, early brain development. And that introduced me up to quite a number of um, ideas that I hadn't really pursued related to the effect of early experiences and in fact, preconceptual experiences, so experiences of your parents before they met um, on the outcome of, of their offspring and then their offspring and so on. So it was these kinds of things that, that led me to help design programs. So we have a program now that's running a couple of native reserves intervening early as soon as the women are pregnant. Uh, we have another program that's being designed in the um, neonatal intensive care unit 
uh, at the University of Calgary, uh, the Calgary Children's. So things like that, where you can actually design programs that can be implemented and can be simple and don't require a lot of fancy drugs and so on. It's behavioral. Oh, good. That makes me happy. <laughs> What's, um, I have two kind of questions. So one is, um, what do you think about the whole, because there's some kind of books and stuff, you know, a lot of self-help books and things like that saying like, um, behavior follows feelings or feelings follow behavior. Do you like, do you kind of side with one more than the other? Or do you kind of just think that's hogwash or, <laughs> cause I mean the brain, like how you feel does generate certain behaviors or lack of behaviors, right? Like if you don't think you're going to succeed, you're probably not going to try something, but mm -hmm. at the same time, if you really believe in something, despite the odds against you, you will. Right. So, um, I'm kind of a, a you know, what you, what you feel drives the behavior type of person. But what do you think about that? Well, uh, when I was a postdoc at the MNI, Brenda Milner uh, gave me a label and she said I was the first person she'd ever see who escapes into action. And I think that hmm. that's a model that works because um, it does mean that positive thinking, I can do this, um, even though you have no reason to believe that, uh, except that egotistical or something or stupid but anyway <laughs> or brave. Uh, it's worked uh, or brave yeah and it's worked and so oh well, let's just write the first book on how the brain works okay let's do that we can do that and so uh, it never occurred to me that we couldn't do it and so i think oh. that based on my own and watching you same kind of thing um positive um thoughts are going to generate behaviors um that are going to be uh, beneficial but uh, it's important to realize that while behavior can change the brain, the brain changes behavior. So it's not, it's not a one-way street, it's back and forth. And so as the, as the behavior changes, the brain is being changed by behavior. So a lot of people are surprised at this, but just imagine you're learning to play the guitar, you, okay? At, at first, it's like your first day in rehab class because your fingers don't make those movements. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not possible. It's not possible to make a barcode. I mean, how could you do that? Um, but as you keep doing it, your behavior is now shaping the brain. And the brain goes, well, we can do that. And so the, the uh, connections, the networks that are necessary to make that B minor chord or whatever it is, right, mm -hmm. um, are changing. And so now you're getting new networks. Well, as you get those new networks, the behavior gets even better. So that's feeding back and forth on itself. So behavior is changing the brain, the brain changes, which changes behavior. So it's, it's not a one-way street, you have both going on. The other thing is you can't be impatient. Oh, so people, <laughs> guilty. People will say to me, well, you know, my, my mom's had a stroke and she's been taking uh, speech therapy and she's not getting anywhere. And I say, well, how many sessions has she had? Four. And I'm going, how long did it take her to learn to talk the first time? Wasn't four days. Right. Um, and so, and it wasn't four hours, it was all day, right? It was around yeah, her all the time. That's a good point. Hmm. Yeah, so you, it's, it's a 24 seven deal. And so you people have to recognize that it's gonna take longer. And if you're 80 and you've had a stroke, it's gonna take longer than if you're 20 and you had the same stroke for uh, lots of reasons. Uh, the brain isn't quite as plastic, but it is still plastic. It can, you can do it, it just means it's gonna take a while. 
Yeah, that's um, so have you looked into Oliver Sacks uh, books and stuff like that? Because he's I know he's a huge advocate for brain plasticity as well. And he um, developed certain things for like people with um, like vestibular issues, like imbalance and dizziness. He put a device that kind of created like a bubbly feeling on the side that you were imbalanced on. So if you were leaning more towards the left, it would bubble on the left and then the person could straighten up and it taught them to, to become balanced, like they could function again and then they could function without it as well for a long time after. I was lucky to have the opportunity to meet him oh. and spend time with him uh, when he was in Lethbridge. Um, you know, my first entry to him was uh, Awakenings, um, which was a fabulous book. Um, and of course, it, it turned into a movie and so on and so on. But he has, has a lot of other books. Now, the thing about Oliver Sacks is he's, he's passed away, of course, but he wasn't really a scientist, but he was a keen observer. And you've just described an example of how he could use his observations to, to make differences. But he also could use his observations um, to understand the nature of people's um, brains. So yeah, I'm well, well aware of Oliver Sacks. Yeah, that's cool that you got to meet him. So um, yeah. this question is just gonna go back a little bit to what you said earlier about the programs developed for um, early intervention for like First Nations women or pregnant women. Um, so I this is my first time hearing about that. And I think that, um, you know, just like life experience has shown me and also by observation that, um, you know, pre, preconceived experience, as you say, with the parents do affect their children. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, how did, what kind of early interventions do you have in the programs? Well, we start out by, first of all, we knew that we couldn't have white guys going into the reserve and telling people how to raise their kids. And that would just be stupid. Yeah. Um, it's a program that's done in conjunction with the Martin Family Initiative. So Paul Martin, former prime minister of Canada, has this uh, philanthropic um, deal and uh, it's related to indigenous people and trying to improve the life of indigenous people. So what we did was to say, okay, what we need to do is to train, in this case, um, Cree women, although they wouldn't have to be Cree, it's just that these nations are working with their Cree, so it makes it better if they can speak the language. Right. Uh, train these Cree women, none of them, well, one of them is a social worker, most of them had finished high school, but um, had no formal training. So we set up a training program to train them. And so these women, when um, when the moms were identified as being pregnant by the um, their, their physician, they would say, there's this program um, you might be interested in, and you could um, go to the health unit and talk to them and see if you want to be in it. And so uh, the women did, they wanted to be in it because of course, you don't get a manual when you're pregnant as to what it is you're supposed to do. People will tell you things, but it's all sort of by the seat of your pants. And so yeah. the idea that you could actually go and get training by people who all, all of whom are moms, uh, who would actually come to your home. Now COVID has put a wrench into this a bit. Um, we've just finished our third year. We're in our fourth year of this program. Um, and so one of the interesting uh, little factoids is that in many reserves, um, the apprehension rate of children in the, in the first year of life is about 50%. So 50% of the kids are taken away for some period of time because of problems 
um, in the home or whatever. Uh, once my program has started, there haven't been any. Um, so it's, it's making a difference. Wow. Furthermore, it's making a difference um, to the dads because the dads did not know that their behavior can have such a huge impact on their children. And so the dads are getting involved too. So there are many, many things um, in our package of stuff that, that's going on. So one of the big things is uh, skin contacts, you know, infant massage. So skin to skin contact early on, um, singing to the kids, ideally in Cree, uh, as well as in whatever other language, but lots of singing, rocking, touching uh, when they're really little, uh, reading to them. Uh, these things all seem self-evident, but they're not. People don't know these things. Mm -hmm. And so um, we have uh, our own building now uh, on, on the uh, reserve. This is near Watasco and Moskowitz. Um, and it's, it's urban skin is where the one reserve the uh, nation is. And they have, we have a building of our own. So there's a, a place where women can go and have coffee and chat with other mothers, bring their babies. And they've got sort of a, a baby room and there's toys and so on. But the women get a chance to meet one another. Now my naivete, not knowing anything about um, uh, First Nations, I assume they all know one another. I mean, they're not very big. They've got like 4,000 people. They almost know one another. They don't know anybody. And one of the reasons is they have no transportation. There's no um, sort of social events that are regular that they go to and so on. So this provides an opportunity for them to meet one another. We bought cars. And so now uh, one of the reasons that women weren't getting their kids vaccinated wasn't because they were anti-vaxxers they couldn't get to the clinic right so we take them and nice. so now the kids are all getting vaccinated and so on so it's a whole ride a wide variety of things the one that we're designing for the neonatology unit for um, the children who are poxic ischemic um, is a little well, can you explain mm -hmm. what that is, just in case there's some listeners who don't? Yeah, so the babies have a difficult birth, and so they're basically uh, deprived of oxygen at, at birth, and so they end up um, with brain injuries. Uh, they could be quite severe, and they'll have uh, cerebral palsy or whatever, or they may not. Mm -hmm. uh, the treatment I discovered when I was giving a presentation there, the treatment that is used is you cool the babies down um, for, oh, 24 to 48 hours, and that um, reduces the inflammation. Then you warm them up and you give them to the parents and say, good luck. Well, that's not a treatment program. And so we designed a program called High Hopes, Hypoxic Ischemic, ischemic Encephalitis, Hopes. We've got um, PhD students who are, who are working with us on this, as well as neonatologists at the Calgary Children's. Uh, we have we had money to get going, but because of COVID, we can't, but we will be. And we're so we're expanding what we're doing. Uh, it's going to be similar, though. Lots of uh, uh, contact comfort, lots of talking to the kids in a serve and return manner, looking at them, talking back and forth, not sitting in front of the TV or whatever. It's mm -hmm. got to be a lot of this eye-to-eye uh, -eye contact, touch, and so on, all of these, all of these things. Yeah, so that's the general idea. That's so cool. Are there um, any plans maybe to branch out of First Nation and include others, like more, like, I don't know, other people of different We ways? have money. And, well, we have money. When I say we, I'm really flattering myself. It's not me. 
uh, <laughs> I mean, the program coordinator who, who works for Paul Martin uh, has managed to get another uh, lump of money from Health Canada and has expanded to other reserves, both in Alberta um, and BC and one in uh, the Yukon, it's either Yukon or Northwest Territories, I can't remember. So it's expanded, but the money is uh, ideally we would be able to expand the program, but the money is earmarked uh, because of what we wrote it for, for Indigenous right. uh, yeah. attempts first. And then once it's sort of a trial, uh, just a proof of principle is what I want to say. We're proving the principle works. And once it does and becomes well known, it can be expanded. Now the neonatology one is not First Nations, although there, there may be uh, potentially First Nations kids, but this is everybody. So that one is expanded mm -hmm. uh, for sure. So that neonatology one, is that one kind of uh, entering into hospitals and stuff? Like if I become a primary care practitioner, which is kind of the route that I would do if I uh, survive the nursing program, um, I would move on to become a primary care practitioner. Would I then have access to send people to that program in the hospitals? Or how would I, how could I go well, about recommending? Right now, no, unless the child was, unless the child had difficult birth and was required to be in the uh, intensive care. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the group we're starting with. We will also be looking at uh, premature infants um, same same deal. So they're already in hospital. Um, to expand it to kids who do not have these uh, medical problems uh, is, is the logical uh, extension somewhere down the road. And try, so Robin Gibb uh, in our department uh, has a program called uh, Building Better Brains. And so she's working with kids uh, that are just in the uh, Southern Alberta community. Um, and they're working on training um, what's called executive functions, so planning functions of little kids, and it's working. And so they've now got a lot of people uh, signed up for this. And so this program's expanding. It started out with three, three classrooms, three schools, um, preschools, and now it's, it's uh, um, continuing and getting larger and larger. And the kids are doing really well. And what, what it involves is teaching the parents how to raise the kids. How is it you play these games with the kids and you interact with them? And now you've got the serving return, the touch, the reading, and then these games um, that they play. And the kids love them and the parents get to interact with the kids in a way they've not done before. So this is pretty cool. That is awesome. That makes my heart really happy. <laughs> um, I guess, uh, so um, one final question in regards to this one, uh, this topic is um, how like how can people go about finding these programs? Like if I, how could I, like if I come across somebody um, who might have trouble bonding with the child or, you know, something like that, or if I'm in the hospital and there is a premature birth or it leads to, a, um, you know, a brain injury of some kind from oxygen deprivation, right? Because nurses will see that all the time in um, pediatrics and maternity and delivery. So let's say I come across some of that in my mm -hmm. nursing journey. It'll be a short one, but it'll be real, right? So how could I recommend it or how can people find these programs? Well, the programs related to uh, intensive care and so on, you wouldn't have to find, they'll find the kids. Oh, uh, okay. The kids will be referred to these 
was right. But other kids uh, who are having problems that are not related to early births or prematurity or whatever, but slow development or um, difficulty um, pro-socially and so on, um, the health units um, have information. And so the health unit should be able to provide a route to get uh, to be directed towards these things. Now, um, we've been involved with the uh, uh, Eureka Warner one, there's one in Lesbridge and so on, and uh, they know about the programs. And so um, as the programs do better and better, they become, they become better and better known. But certainly Robin and historically me have given so many talks to physicians, to nurses and so on um, in uh, the Lesbridge area that there's yeah. knowledge out there for sure. That's pretty cool because um, I know that if I do the nurse practitioner thing, uh, it'll be four years that I'll be um, become a practitioner. So that's actually not that long. Yep. <laughs> um, but I would certainly definitely um, because I can open uh, my own clinic as a nurse practitioner with the program like in Saskatchewan, which is what I would take because Hello, Saskatchewan resident, go riders. Um, <laughs> but I would definitely, um, definitely keep something like that very available for absolutely everyone that came through the doors. Like I would just mm. have that. So we may talk again in the foreseeable future. I have two former students who are nurses. Uh, one um, got his PhD with me. Wow. And he uh, then took a post postgraduate program in nursing. He's also a veterinarian. And um, he has a job with his, um, I guess it's called the Chinook Health Unit, anyway, whatever Lesbridge is in. Yeah. And, uh, and then another one who finished his master's with me, who already was a nurse. And he, during, during COVID, is taking a leave of absence from his graduate studies to be a nurse again, oh. um, doing home care related. So, okay. Um, as we get more and more of our students, and you, for example, uh, spreading the gospel, um, it, it gets better known. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, that's something that A, I've lived, B, I've observed, C, um, I've kind of done a little bit of a nosedive into neuroscience, right? So it's something that I'm also mm -hmm. very supportive of, of doing. That's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. So the first question here is, how might a human brain appear anatomically if the person had nutritional, social, and stimulation dep deprivation for the first 16 years of their lives or during the entire span of each critical developmental period? Can you briefly explain what a critical developmental period is, just for the listeners who may not know? Okay, we can start with that. So the, the brain... Uh, is expecting to get certain kinds of experiences, okay? One of the best examples would be uh, sound. So the brain is expecting to hear sound, and there are periods when the brain, the auditory system is altered by the sound that it's exposed to. So for example, if the sound that the, uh, an infant is exposed to is uh, some sort of uh, Asian language, the brain goes, oh, okay. If it's um, a European language, that's different. And so the, the phonemes are different. The structure of the language is different. So when you're born, you can identify the phonemes in all languages. But if you're living in, a, in a, an environment where the uh, 
phonemes are all Asian phonemes and not European ones, then what you're going to do is lose the ability to discriminate many of the European phonemes because the brain doesn't need to do it. Okay, so there's a critical period for that uh, when when you've got to be exposed to them. So um, if you're exposed to um, different phonemes from different languages prior to about age six or eight months, uh, this will persist and you won't lose those um, the ability to discriminate those phonemes. Similarly with vision, the uh, brain is expecting to get certain kinds of visual information, faces and so on. And so there are critical periods where the, you must have that experience in order to um, get the, the brain to wire up in a way that, that it can do it. Right. Because okay, when, when Mother Nature designed the brain, she didn't know what, the, what environment the brain was going to be in. So uh, when we're developing our brain, we make twice as many brain cells as we need. And beginning around age two or three, we start throwing away the ones we don't need because we're not in an environment that requires those. Right. Similarly, we make more connections than we need, than we need. And uh, around age five or six, we start getting rid of those connections. So we're, that's called pruning. So these critical periods um, occur at different times. Now, they're not all early in development. There's another critical period that's really critical um, to who you become, and that's during uh, adolescence. So beginning around in girls, probably age 12, we'll say 11 or 12, boys a little older, 12, 13, you enter into this adolescent critical period that continues until about age 18 or 19. It's quite a long one. Mm -hmm. And this is where you are deciding who you're going to be. This is, uh, adolescence is in fact a period where you discover yourself, right? And the brain is changing. So one of the reasons that adolescence can be so difficult to be around is because they're changing every day. Mm -hmm. So they're constantly changing who they are. And, you know, I know who you are and I can predict what you're going to do. But when you were 15, I would not have been able to do that very well. Oh. And same for me, when I was 15, I'm nothing nothing like that person now, obviously. That's, a, that's almost 60 years ago. Um, yeah. But it's a, a critical period that's only recently been recognized as being as critical as these ones in early infancy and early, early development. Right. So those are critical periods. Okay. And so the bigger question was if you have all some sort of um, just like not experiences. So yeah. um, whether it's nutritional or social or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, the brain is expecting to have certain kinds of social experiences. It's expecting uh, certain nutrients in order to develop. It doesn't have them. It's not going to do it normally. That doesn't mean it's irreversible, but it does mean that the brain's structure is not going to be the same. So there are a variety of things that could happen. One is that the brain doesn't do the pruning the way it should have. Uh, another one is that a variety of uh, neural connections are not formed because they're, the stimulation that's required during development for them to form wasn't there. Okay, so if you just looked at the brain, you might, it's not gonna be little. Um, it, it's just going to not have the same wiring diagram as mm. it would have had, had it had a different kind of experience. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. So I guess one of the things um, 
and this is just this was mentioned a little bit in your class but I'll, I'll just say it as if I don't know or don't remember for the listeners to hear your answer but um so there's the left-sided and the right-sided hemispheric right left hemisphere right hemisphere um I'm just wondering if um I believe it's the oh dear you might have to correct me <laughs> is it the left hemisphere that tends to develop first the logical and the language and the well it's the left the language component is developing first yeah and so the left hemisphere is developing faster and sooner than than the right hemisphere and the right hemisphere is the emotional kind of big picture um social skills type upside right that's the abstract artsy thing i'm just wondering could it be possible um i guess there all things are possible really in terms of the different shapes of the brain so if you have all of these things combined right you don't get stimulation you don't get social or touch or whatever it is the kids need right that way and you don't get um nutritional like you're deprived for a long time 16 years a long time right um then your brain's apt to to show different structure like some something will be smaller like a left hemisphere might be smaller or your frontal lobes might be smaller, or it might be less dense gray matter maybe, or how would that maybe? Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that the brain is necessarily going to be smaller, although certainly children from low socioeconomic status families um, have somewhat smaller brains. But what's more important is that the um, networks for language, for example, are definitely smaller. So if you look at children who are raised, not in poverty necessarily, but in, in low SES families, the, uh, the vocabulary is way smaller and they have uh, a deficit in how many words they've actually heard because the, the environment they're in isn't producing all of these words. So by age four, the estimate is, is that kids in low SES families have been exposed to 30 million fewer words than kids in high SES families. Okay. Okay. So uh, basically the gist is that the neural connections in there would be different than the actual anatomical structures. More or less. Right. And so the brain is made up of networks. And so one of the um, networks that people talk about a lot is called the default network. So if you're just sitting doing nothing, in particular, not thinking about anything, just sort of zoning out, the default network is active. And so the default network turns out is experience dependent. And the structure of that default network, which is, includes frontal um, and parietal connections, um, is related to IQ. And so experience will help develop that default network um, and allows us to do all kinds of stuff. So um, that default network would not be normal and it would, it still could be formed, but it would not be normal if you had the kinds of experiences you've described. Right, okay. All right, um, this is kind of keeping on with it and it does mention a few other things that we've talked about in class and just in our own conversations. Um, so the next question here is, um, you've mentioned resilience in your classes. So I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit about that and how someone, let's say with the experiences previously mentioned, right, severely neglected, abused, deprived for the entire formative years, how can they develop resilience? And could anyone um, 
who is struggling, like could they develop resilience at any time in life? And if so, how, especially for later on? So one of the um, basic needs, I guess, for the brain in terms of resilience is genetic. So there are genetic differences. So uh, my friend, um, Tom Boyce has written a book called Dandelions and Orchids. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's Orchids and Dandelions. Anyway, what he um, I think it's dandelions orchids. is that there are two kinds of kids. There are kids that are dandelions and they can grow anywhere. Mm -hmm. And there are orchids that things have to be just right. And the kids who are dandelions are highly resilient because they can be stomped on, they can, they can grow through cracks, they can grow without any dirt and so on, whereas the orchids can't do that. So there's a, I won't go into the genetics of it, but there's a, a genetic difference in terms of uh, alleles of certain genes that will predispose you to be an orchid or predispose you to be a dandelion. Now let's suppose you're an orchid. And so you're not very resilient. Um, can you become more resilient? And the answer is yes, given that you could be moved to the right environment. Right. Okay, so this, if you could be taken from this environment that's not nurturing and taken to one that is, then you could develop um, resilience. Um, the dandelion, it wouldn't matter uh, very much because um, they're gonna, they're gonna manage anyway. And so uh, unfortunately, there are, probably aren't as many dandelions as there are orchids, but the dandelion can grow and, and flourish anywhere. But if it goes into this really um, supportive environment, it'll get huge, right? You'll have dandelions that are a foot tall. And so um, that little metaphor, I think, works in terms of understanding resilience. Now, one of the things in the supportive environment that um, is important is, is training people or teaching people not to be negative. That is to be positive. It's, yeah. it's kind of what cognitive behavioral therapy is about. What it's about is getting you um, to change your way of thinking in a more positive way. The glass is always half full, it's not half empty. Yeah. And very often um, people will uh, decide that it's half empty and the world's crap. And the solution to that is not to give them drugs. Uh, a pill is not a skill. What you have to do is give people skills that will allow them different um, cognitive modes, different ways of thinking, uh, patterns of thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. The same thing would be true in, in supporting resilience, getting people to think differently uh, about what's around them. And, yeah, that's you know, of... There are people like you who that managed to do it on your own without somebody uh, instructing you. But a lot of people need, need help in terms of um, learning to be more positive about, about things. And the other thing, of course, is being able to develop these um, uh, social networks that are supportive yeah. in the long run are pretty important. Yeah, that's been the true test of resilience is finding out what is actually healthy and trying to make that happen. <laughs> but um, this kind of actually mm -hmm. uh, is reminiscent a little bit of the placebo and the nocebo because some people are more susceptible to kind of fall for the placebo where like you're not actually taking anything but it still works because of your thinking right? Like in the body's ability to heal, which I think is fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. And then also the nocebo, right? There's the, 
uh, I know I've heard doctors refer to them as frequent flyers. That's the one where like you get a headache, you go to the doctor, you get a prescription. You get a stomachache, you go to the doctor, you get a prescription. And those people often don't even finish the meds. They, they're the ones with like the cupboard full that they <laughs> empty out years later. Um, they might be more susceptible yeah, right. to the nocebo, right? Oh, it didn't work, I need something else. And that's kind of a form of resilience, would you say? Like dandelion versus orchid? Well, I Kind of, but it's it's negative thinking, though, isn't it? Yeah, or yeah, yeah I guess this is um, mentality. This didn't work, that didn't work. So, yeah. Okay, so that's cool. So, yeah, so any in my experience. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. So, so in my experience, and it may not be based on um, much facts, but is that people who um, are frequent flyers, for example, also tend to be depressive. Yes. Um, yeah which is not a good thing. And that's because of negative attitudes about things. Yeah. Right. So then, so anyone at any point can develop re um, resilience kind of, you know, if you've had let, like, let's say you've had a really, really bad hands dealt to you your whole life until you're 45. And then you're like, I want life to be better. And you can kind of, it would be harder probably, but they could at any time, right? Develop that resilience. Yeah. That, yeah with that change in mentality. It would be very hard. Yeah. It, you know, it would be very hard. And I think you'd need um, somebody to help you through it. Could be easy to fall back. Yeah. Yeah. Reversion probably increases with time as well, right? Like reversing yeah. back. Yeah. Okay. So I guess um, this, like following this, this is kind of along the same thing. It's like, can such a person, as we've talked about somebody, you know, let's say they've got a shit hand for 45 years. Um, can, can they actually change the structure of their own brains for better or for worse? Um, let's, let's say without substance, because we know that affects the brain, right? Substance abuse. And then how could learning about pro-social life and support change neural growth and function for the better if it's begun later in life? So let's go back to that 45-year-old. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. We know that, yeah. We know that people, let's say at 45, um, can learn lots of new stuff that are quite different from what they've done before. Uh, it's quite, quite possible to um, take up a new instrument at, um, pay, at age 45. So rather than uh, starting playing the guitar as you know, 10, um, you start at 45, it's going to be harder. Mm -hmm. But you certainly can do it. You're never going to be outstanding at it. Um, it's just not going to happen. But you can be very good at it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't start riding horses until I was 50. And, um, you know, there are 12-year-old kids who can do things better than I can on horses. But I can do pretty well and, and, and show them now. You know, I've been riding for over 20-some years now, uh, almost daily. And But once again, you can't just have one lesson. You've got it's it's the same as recovering from a stroke. You've got to have um, total uh, immersion in it and just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. So nothing is going to be easy. So if you take this forty-five-year-old person who's had a crappy life, um, it is possible um, for them to turn things around. There's no question that people do that. <coughs> Pardon me, but it's going to require someone helping them. 
it's unlikely someone all on their own could just uh, yeah yeah no kidding um i'm just wondering about what the um like as they learn about positive things and they try to implement them like obviously it takes a long time and the older you are and the more shit you've had the harder it's going to be but i'm just wondering like what are the kind of subtle neural differences that begin as you as you change and you make the plans and you execute those plans what are the changes in the neural structures that happen as you begin to turn your life around well the networks that are going to be necessary for this would be in part that, that default network but there are other networks there are networks that are social networks and so the networks which would be uh, not well formed um, would start to form in a way that's more supportive of the behaviors that um, we're looking for. This in particular will include frontal, frontal lobe networks. Um, and they'll take time to form, but they will form. Would that just be like dendritic growth in the frontal lobes or in the? Dendritic growth and, and uh, synaptic growth. So um, there is this view, Mike Merzenich at the University of California, San Francisco, believes that uh, all behaviors are learned and all behaviors can be unlearned. Hmm. So he uh, is doing an experiment um, with people who are um, diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, right. probably on drugs. And he says, okay, they've had all these years to learn these pathological behaviors. We can unlearn them. We can, we can train them hmm. on new behaviors. And this isn't going to require drugs. Um, in order to do this. Now, it's going to take time. This pro program has been uh, in, in progress for uh, at least five years, maybe closer to 10 years. So I don't know how far they've gotten, but that is his view. He's the guru of brain plasticity. Mm -hmm. And just basically says all behaviors are learned and they can all be unlearned. That's cool. I actually, I really like that. I also like pill is not a skill. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool. So, and I, I agree. Yeah, with both of those actually. Um, well, speaking of learning and unlearning, like people develop habits, right? Because we're creatures of learning, uh, mostly by observation and imitation. So how could a person say like overcome their development? So relearn, right? Because it's all these critical things that you've grown up learning, right? So how do you relearn these better habits later in life? So I guess like this might refer to like, how do you not revert back to your old habits when things get tough, right? Because we talk about learning, memory, habit formation, but how do you break them habits and learn them to redevelop, essentially, as an adult? Well, you can see this if we just watch people riding horses. We have clinics uh, once a month at our arena. We watch people who are riding for a long time. They'll have lots of bad habits in terms of what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the of the, of the clinician is to give them drills that will get rid of those habits. So one bad habit um, that I can give you an example of is one that I've had, and that is because I'm riding one-handed, so here's my one hand, mm -hmm. um, and I'm riding with my right hand, going, I want to make movements to the left, it's across the neck and that's fine. If I want to make movements to the right, you can't do this because it's going to pull ahead the opposite direction. So what you have to do is lift up and make subtle movements. Cool. And so you can train people to do that. And the clinician just has to say, uh, no, inside hand up, up, up. 
And then uh, people can learn to, to not do it. But if, if something bad happens and the horse is spooked or whatever, what comes back right away? All that bad habit is still yeah. in there. So it takes a long time to get rid of those bad habits. Right. You can do it. Yeah. So it'd yeah. be kind of like yeah. repetition and maybe more like external reminders or something that like, you know, like if you're, if you're in a yeah. team with somebody like, right. Okay. No, no paddle, paddle at this angle, like lean to left, yep. lean to left or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. External yeah. reminders. Cool. Yeah. So for somebody who maybe doesn't have the like good fortune or whatever of having a team support around them, um, like I do, I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful for the people in my life. Uh, They're awesome. But so let's say for people who don't, or if they did and they have to move away or whatever the case, that they don't have an immediate support system around them, does them kind of reminding themselves like that, does that make the same impact or is it kind of more useful or more helpful when it's an external kind of reminder? Do you know what I mean? Like if somebody was to leave post-its around saying, keep your head up, sun will shine after the rain. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, one um, a former colleague of ours at, at the U of L um, did studies trying to, to use cues to get people to um, not be involved in bad habits. And so what she would do is she would get a colored ribbon and it would go around the wrist. And that ribbon meant um, safe sex, or that ribbon meant uh, don't drink and drive, and so on. Right. Okay. And the idea was that when people are in various situations, uh, when they might be by themselves, they'll see the ribbon, the ribbon goes, oh, right, I'm not supposed to do that. Right. Or, I'm, I am supposed to do this. Okay. Her, her focus was on the two examples I gave, but you could use it for anything, mm -hmm. uh, having the visible reminders so that it's there. Um, so that's one sort of way of getting an, an external reminder, but it's not given to you by an external person. It's actually, you know, attached to you. Yeah. So that's one sort of thing that, that could be beneficial. If you don't have the social support network, though, it's clearly going to be a lot harder. Yeah. Um, to do. But there are um, things that people can do to, to really help themselves in that way. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this one's a little bit kind of uh, different. So this one's actually going to talk about the effects of long-term boredom. So I'm wondering, um, I guess like, yeah, uh, for me, and you might not like hearing this as a, as a <laughs> teacher, but it, just so you know, it was in the last year, not in your classes. <laughs> but so I guess um, the question is like, what do you think the effects of long-term boredom is on the brain? And I'm asking this because I've been become very bored in school and I find that I kind of look without seeing, like, like I don't have to think, like I stopped thinking. So I actually dropped out of school, uh, the nursing program to kind of find my brain again. And I'm waking up and I'm feeling curious and I'm learning again. I went back to music for a while just to get some credentials and then fitness. I'm also doing the personal training. A long-term boredom can't, like my thinking through this time, cause I was bored every day is like, it can't be good for the brain. Like it just can't. So neither can the long-term use of like, technology right like computers and phones and who knows what else like there's some people who use like four different gadgets every day let alone one so I'm just wondering if you can share your opinion and kind of maybe things you've noticed or researched on the impact of technology dependence 
on the developing brains of kids and teens, and also of the impact of long-term boredom on the brain? Well, they're a little related. Um, mm -hmm. One of the effects of all the technical gadgets I've noticed in students over the years is that it's more difficult to keep them engaged uh, for long periods because they things on the gadgets are snippets, right? Bang, bang, you're doing this, you're playing a game, you're doing whatever. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. It's like Twitter or Facebook. It's always like a status and a picture. Like yeah. Good. And people can't inhibit um, ding, oh, I've got to see what's on my email or whatever, right? Right. And, and whereas um, old people like me who didn't grow up with these gadgets um, are far less likely to do that. And so the attention span, oddly enough, I think in older people is actually longer often now than younger people, which you would expect would be the reverse. Yeah, I, I actually agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so the people are being trained to have short attention uh, periods. So the, the challenge um, as an instructor, in my case, for example, is to keep people like you awake um, and you know have ways of you know stimulating, okay, we're gonna do something different now. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of that's uh, um, more difficult. So what's happening when people get bored? the uh, attentional networks, because we have networks of attention just turn off. Right, yeah. They're not I, engaged anymore. I actually found, because um, I used to be, um, I used to do a lot and um, people ask me like, how do you do so much? Like how do you get everything done and you never seem tired or burnt out or whatever? And it was because I would leave my phone at home and go about my day. And it was great. I would do all my emailing and checking at the end of the day, sometimes at the start. But I mean, COVID did throw a wrench into that. So now people are more, but I wonder if that actually has to do with all these, like, like ADD is such a common thing. Like people I know that clearly don't, don't have like anything wrong are suddenly popping out with ADD as an adult. And I'm like, how does that, how does that even make sense? Like it's- Well, going back to Mike Mersey, they've learned it. Yeah. Um, and they, they've learned. Um, and so they can be unlearned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, okay, so now we're just going to skip back a little bit to um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's a lot of like ideas online about like self help and stuff like that. And I tried to look for like a concise definition of what cognitive behavioral therapy is. And I know from those three words, you can probably gather has to do with your thinking and your behavior and helping the two of them. <laughs> right. But right. I'm wondering if it if you could maybe give some listeners like a little clarity about what it actually is and how, like some examples of like what that looks like, um, like talking to yourself out loud, choosing nice words, positive thinking. In terms, in terms of CBT, um, yeah. So if you think about historically what psychotherapy, because uh, CBT is a kind of psychotherapy, historically, uh, Freud and then many others were looking for reasons for why people have certain behaviors, mm -hmm. right? And so we're gonna we're gonna dwell on the reason you never did like your mother or whatever, right? right. And in CBT, it, that doesn't matter. Whatever caused it, we're, let's just do what we've got. So we've got these negative uh, behaviors. So what we need to do is to get positive, more positive thinking, and try to figure out ways to change. Um, 
the way in which we approach the world. So mm -hmm. if you're depressed, uh, for example, uh, and you, you're paralyzed by the depression, okay, we don't care why you're depressed. Uh, we will agree that you are, <laughs> but let's move forward and say, okay, what, what things do you like doing? What things do you like thinking about? And let's think about those. Um, let's not uh, dwell on things that are, are probably not very important, but have become really important. Mm -hmm. so uh, that person looked at me funny and so clearly I'm an idiot. Well, you, you made that up. Um, mm -hmm. And so what you've got to do in CBT is to try and change the thinking in order to change the behavior. So for example, in depression, um, there's a therapy that a, a friend of mine has developed and she calls it uh, this, the one sock therapy. And then when she was really depressed, she couldn't get up and she thought, okay, let's put one sock on. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's put the other sock on. And so sort of slowly worked her way through this doing one little thing at a time. Whereas when you and I get up in the morning, it's just a flurry of things to get to get going. <laughs> yeah. But you can't get up, you're not going to do that. So what you have to do is to say a positive thing would be do a little thing. Right. You know, and, and you just have one little thing and another little thing and another little thing. And they eventually you you're up. It may have taken you an hour, but you're up. Okay. okay and tomorrow maybe it'll take 55 minutes. You can get the sock on sooner. So the change in the way you think about the world can be translated into the way in which you behave. And remember now, behavior is changing the brain. Mm -hmm. Just like the brain is changing behavior. So if the behavior starts to, to wake up, if you like, uh, in the case of depression, um, it makes a huge difference. And I, I mean, everybody in their life is going to have some period in which they're down. Yeah. They may not be clinically depressed, but they're going to be down. And I can recall uh, one period in my life where I was down and the reason I was down and I discovered that as I worked through it was because um, I went through life and I had a bar I was going to try to get to I mean then you go over the bar and you say oh and you raise the bar and then you raise the bar and then you raise the bar right. and then you get to the point that bar is so high you're going to fail right you can't possibly get over the bar and I remember uh, having dinner with a dear uh, late friend of mine, psychologist, um, and we were in Greece on some island uh, heading to a meeting. Anyway, we're sitting there and he says, you know, you're not Jesus Christ. You're never going to get over the bar you've set for yourself. What you've got to do is to get realistic as to what is practical and what you're expecting of yourself is impossible. And I looked at it and I said, what? And he said, think about it. And so I started growing out and I thought, he's right. You know, I've got these successes. I've got this honorary degree. I've got this, I've got that and that. And so the bar got so high, what would it take to make you feel like you could uh, reach the bar? Well, nothing. And what would make, what would it take for you to feel okay with not reaching the bar? Yeah, you need a realistic bar. And so you need to sit back and say, okay, um, it's like the one song thing. Okay, what, what could I do in, in this program or this research or whatever it is, writing, um, that would be realistic and uh, something I should aim for? So maybe it would be uh, writing a page a day. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
write a page a day. Oh, I can do that. I can see you write a page a day. Rather than saying, I'm going to write a book a day. Well, that is impossible. <laughs> yeah. You can't do that. Yeah. And if you get in that mindset, which I had at that time, uh, all of a sudden I realized what the problem was. And I uh, said, right, okay. It, it took me probably a couple of months to sort through it, but, but did and realized, okay, you actually are successful. You're not a failure. And um, accept the fact that you're not going to win the Nobel Prize because the research you do isn't of that kind. It's, it's applied stuff and it's really, you're mm -hmm. not going to discover a molecule that will cure cancer because you're, that's not what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're doing other stuff. So um, I think it's that kind of thinking that has to, to, to um, yeah. is part of the CP, changing what you're thinking to change your behavior. Yeah, sometimes it takes like a, a pretty good knock on the head. You need a reality check to just be like, ooh, because I don't think perhaps if your friend hadn't have said it so directly, you might not have noticed, right? Like you might have. No, I think that's right. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's a good one. That's really interesting. So would that be kind of the same guideline for, because you know how some people are just kind of bored with life all the time and everything like it seems like some people especially if you've accomplished a lot you don't have to fight for the basics like I do you know so some people don't have to fight for anything but they seem kind of <laughs> complacent I suppose so would yeah. that kind of be a good way to encourage them to get out of that rut and just be like yeah what if you if you could do something um what would you do you know some, something different. Well, if you can do something different, what would you do? Then a person might say, well, I'd like to learn to play tennis. Well, let's, let's get at it. Right, yes. Don't sit there and say, I'd like to do it, but I won't be able to, uh, but rather, okay, what's, uh, what is the, is the one sock uh, analogy here for, for learning to play tennis? Yeah. And learning to play tennis, if you're 45, to use that example, is not gonna be easy, um, but you can do it. And yeah. it's just, um, yeah. Yeah, one of the beauties of the brain is that you can always learn anything at any age. So I guess uh, to finish this question is like playfulness. I'm just wondering what the, the benefits of playfulness is on the brains of an adult, because I know with kids, you know, that's how they develop their social skills, their um, empathy to a degree, right? They're putting themselves in situations that they're not in mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, and they're building like, tactile connections, all of, all of that, right? So I'm wondering, like adults kind of lose that playfulness, <laughs> mostly. Um, what, like, what would the benefits of that be? Would it still be as significant for adults as it would be for the child? Um, during development, play shapes the um, networks engaging the frontal wall. It actually simplifies them in some ways. Oh, um, vision making. And in the ab absence of play, that doesn't happen. And so, but in adulthood, you're asking a very difficult question. What is play doing there? I would say that what play is doing, and it's probably not going to be as much social play in adulthood as it is other kinds of play, uh, games, I don't know, cards or whatever. Mm. Um, it's going to be refining and keeping those frontal lobe networks uh, active. Cool. I would think that would be the main the main thing because during development you're developing those frontal lobe networks with play, and I'm guessing that you would be able to continue to uh, get those networks active with adult play. But it wasn't until like 
till I, I was a young adult, I mean, younger adult, um, that I really played games and did things like that with them because uh, I just cleaned up my life and had a different set of friends that did different things. And that's where I really learned about pro-social support and I, my eyes were opened and I, I started learning about neuroscience before I came to Lethbridge for it. Um, I was quite interested in it. Still am. Um, but uh, I've noticed since interacting with the games and things like that, um, that decision-making has been almost faster, but so has creativity. And I'm very extremely creative. I've always been. Um, but I thought games kind of pulled that out in different ways, which was interesting. Um, because like, if you play Dutch Blitz, right, where you have to like slap your hand down on the pile really fast and get rid of all your cards, like that's very fast thinking and uh, reacting as well, but you have to react logically. I'm like, right. yeah, so it's just kind of things like that. So the creativity and the decision and the reactions. I'm just wondering if you can talk just a little bit about how diet, exercise, hydration, and substances affect the brain directly, resulting in behavioral changes as well. And because this is the ongoing fad, um, I'm wondering if you can toss in a little bit about cannabis and psychedelics, the effects that it has on the brain if you use it regularly over a long term. So let's say regularly, just for to have a point of definition, is um, once a week. Okay. Well, we can talk about what drugs do to the brain. So all psychoactive drugs change the brain, and all psychoactive drugs produce what appear to be fairly permanent changes in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so there are uh, neural networks that are changing in response to that. Okay, so if you look at um, nicotine as an example, nicotine is one of the most addictive drugs and it produces huge changes in the brain which uh, really don't reverse over time. So you've got these changes in the structure of cells in the frontal lobe um, and in the nucleus accumbens and so on. So, Students will say to me, is this a bad thing? And I'll say, it's not a bad thing, it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> the drug is changing. Whether it's a bad thing or not is not relevant here. It's the fact is it is changing the brain. What kind and of so, structural changes would there be? Well, if you look at um, neurons that live up here in the frontal lobe, they become more complicated. Um, they have more synapses. And we have to look at neurons that are in the more orbital region, so behind our eyes, they become simpler. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if you think about a disease like schizophrenia, uh, most schizophrenics self-medicate with nicotine. So why would that be? Why would they self-medicate with nicotine? Well, it must be that there's something wrong with the cells up here that the nicotine is reversing. And in fact, in, in schizophrenia, these cells are simple. And so the nicotine is making them more complex. Right. Okay. So you can see that, okay, well, that makes sense. Uh, they're self-medicating and it makes them feel better. Mm -hmm. One of the problems in, in the example I've given those, it doesn't seem to last, doesn't seem to be permanent. Whereas uh, if I were to start um, taking nicotine now, it would be permanent. So, cause I, those cells are perhaps more, more plastic in, in someone who doesn't have um, whatever genes and experiences are related Mm -hmm. uh, to schizophrenia. Hmm. So if you look at um, THC, so um, which is an active ingredient in cannabis, yeah. and compare it to CBD, which is not psychoactive, um, in our studies with THC, um, 
there are permanent changes in the structure of cells. Uh, it's not a stimulant, so the changes are different than the changes that we see with psychomotor stimulants like amphetamine, cocaine, so on. And it's different than what we see in opiates. Um, and so it's a different, different type of change. They're just more, the nuances are different, okay? And one of the things that we see is that um, when you subsequently start having experiences, learning experiences, and the brain has to change. So to learn anything you remember from class, your classes, to, change, to learn anything, the brain has to change. Okay, that's, it's a structural change in the brain that codes memories. Well, if you change the networks with drugs, then the structural changes that are needed for learning are not going to work as well. And so more difficulty in learning things. Right. Um, doesn't mean you can't, it's just gonna be more difficult, may take a lot longer because the neurons have already been changed. And now you're saying, oh, I'm just kidding. I wanna change them this way. Right. And, and if you're continuing to take the drug, and I'm not saying you shouldn't or, or should, but if, you, if people continue to take the drug, um, that's going to continue to make these subsequent learning experiences uh, different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, there's something about, because I, I don't have a lot of experience with psychedelics, like shrooms or whatever, but I've heard that it's used to kind of open the door for treatment for PTSD and things like that. Like a one-time use might help people to get the emotions out and build a connection, but I also am a little bit of an advocate for developing a strong mind without substance. Like, so if you can't introspect without substance, then that's something to say about what you think about yourself, right? Like, cause you live with yourself more than anybody else ever will. And I've heard it can increase forgetfulness. And if it does, I could see it being why, because the, the learning pathways are kind of tricked in a way. So, yeah. yeah. So that's perhaps where the forgetfulness thing could come. But yeah, thanks for just even just that, because it's just interesting to know. I read an eye-opening book called The Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, and I met him. Uh, the gist of his book is that meds are a pharmaceutical money grab that teaches the brain to behave abnormally, and that creates medical dependency. For instance, Taking an SSRI for depression prevents serotonin, which is a feel-good neurotransmitter, from being reused once it deposits into the synaptic cleft, um, which are the spaces between neurons. So when the person tries to go off medications, they relapse because the brain has essentially been taught to block serotonin reuptake, and they're hooked into this medical loop. Now, this is just one example from all the mental health disorders and medications out there. The question is, would you agree with that? Why or why not? Can you discuss how antipsychotics and antidepressants actually affect the brain, according to your research, and what it takes to come off of them? Well, the following what we just talked about, mm -hmm. antipsychotics and antidepressants, are two different classes of drugs that also produce changes in the brain. Mm -hmm. And their changes are very different uh, in the brain. Are they permanent? Well, the whole point of antidepressants is that they should be permanent. Um, that would be the logic. And, and then you would uh, stop taking them, perhaps. The problem is, through my eyes, is a little different than uh, what you described. And that 
it's a little simple-minded to think that um, depression is related to one transmitter. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Um, it's far more complicated than that. So uh, when you start um, monkeying around with um, treatments that are aimed at a particular focus, well, that's great. But that wasn't the cause of the depression. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, or whatever. Yeah. And so you really, um, it's just too simple-minded to think that that drug is going to produce the changes um, that are everything normal because they, they're operating at, at, a, at a point. And really you're trying to change the whole brain. And so if you, I, I can't really um, ex, explain because I don't really understand if you go off the antidepressant cold turkey, uh, that turns out not to be so good. If you are weaned off the drugs over time, evidently it's better. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure that it's related to the changes or not changes in the serotonin reuptake in the case of SSRIs um, per se. It could be other things too that are, that are being affected by the drug. Because imagine you've got a cell, here's a cell, okay? And let's say it's a serotonergic cell. Um, it's connected to all kinds of other things. So if you start changing this cell, it's changing whole networks mm -hmm. that are not serotonergic. Yeah, okay. that's they a good point. It could be cholinergic, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. And so when you suddenly take this away, well, this, this, these networks are there and they're going, uh-oh, things have really changed. And what's going on here? So I can see that as another way of understanding why the, um, the drug is having a, the absence of the drug is having a not good effect. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not I would blame drug companies or not is a whole different issue. Um, yeah. And their job is to make money and it, they don't really, yeah. Yeah. Our, our well-being isn't their first goal. It's to make money. That's, yeah. That's what they do. That's just a fact. So, and um, then this gets back to the problem of that a pill, a pill is not a skill. And so that you've got to learn the skills. Um, yes, I yeah. agree because I have a, a very close family member who surprised me very, very much um, when he told me about uh, depression and being diagnosed. So we lost touch for a bit and then we reconnected and we've actually been a lot better since. And at the time I reconnected with him, I, I was actually at a low point. Um, and so I was, we could say depressed, but I was circumstantially depressed. Whereas he couldn't understand because everything was going well. And he was like, evidently something was wrong. So he got on a therapeutic uh, dose. And at first it was hard, but, but he did the background stuff. He figured out why, what is going on? How do I function as a person? And he enlisted the help that he needed and made some really big, really positive changes in his life. And for me to kind of be on the sideline, it was interesting because he was clinically depressed and I was circumstantially depressed. So my life got a bit better, took some turns for the better and I was better. And he, uh, had to do some background works. And that's what, that's exactly what you're saying. Like he had to build the skills. He had to know, okay, when I'm feeling this, this is going to lead to that and I have to prevent it in action. So he's actually, he was on a therapeutic dose, which is usually a bit higher, um, but he's weaning off and so far so good. And I'm actually really proud of him because I know you have to face yourself essentially in order to help yourself. And it's, it's been pretty cool. Yeah. 
I guess to close, could you yeah. share some of the, like maybe a memorable or funny or impactful moment that you came across in your career? Wow. <laughs> I know there's probably- well, one impactful many. moment obviously was getting the Order of Canada. Oh, yeah. uh, it wasn't funny, but it was, but there, there's a funny component to it. And that is the phone in my office rang and I was right in the middle of something and I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And this person said, I'm, I'm looking for uh, Brian Cohen. I said, you've, you've got him, but be real quick because I'm really busy. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, I'm calling from the governor general's office. And I went, maybe not that busy. Why would <laughs> yeah. the governor general's office be calling me? <laughs> yeah, and then he told me and I went, oh, okay. You're like, you know, I've got all right, I guess I'm not that busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about this. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that uh, one one thing that uh, I think was really funny. Luckily, everything was okay. We had a horse clinic, and I was uh, there's four of us in the arena, and each person was doing their bit. And then you have to wait. So I was I was getting bored, um, and I'm sitting on the horse. My feet aren't in the stirrups, and I thought, well, I'll just go start picking up some of the poop. So I went and I had a, a rake. <laughs> I hadn't realized that I had never picked poop up off back of this horse before. So um, I went, I got this big pile of poop and I'm, I'm raising the poop up and the horse sees it and the horse is going up. He's oh, just no. going up, up, up. Now, a smart person would have just dropped the poop, but I didn't. And I'm going up, up, and I didn't have my feet in the stirrups and I came off backwards, landed on the ground. And I'm, li I'm lying there, you hear a pin drop in the arena. And I started to laugh and I said, I've still got the poop. <laughs> and people laughed and it was okay, everything's good. And it was one of those things that it was so surreal. And it was ha as it was happening and the horse was, was rearing up because he was scared by it, he didn't know what this was. Mm -hmm. This poop levitating beside him. <laughs> and you know, you just don't think. And luckily it all turned out. <laughs> I'll yeah, share one funny- pretty dumb thing. One funny horse story with yeah. you, and then um, so I, uh, Cecile is my I call her my mom because she is my mom. Um, she did horse training, and I used to train horses through her actually. I started when I was 16, we were on this horse, and it was my first time sitting on this horse. And I think Cecile thinks that I have legs that go on for miles because she would line the horse up with the fence, but it was like so far away. I was like, There's no way I can get on this horse from there, you have to bring it closer, please. So she did, and it was like an inch closer. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna try to like hop on. So I did, I managed to get my leg kind of around. So we were double riding um, and I, but I wasn't like fully on the horse yet. And she started going okay. off. And so the horse is going and I was like, well, like, can you wait? Cause I'm like, I was literally like at this angle and I was trying to pull myself up. But there was nothing to grab onto. So I looked at her in her seat, looking nice and stable, and I put my hands on her shoulders and I thought, I'll just pull myself up. <laughs> Next thing you know, we're both on the ground and the horse is trotting away. <laughs> so we just like, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> she was like, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, nobody was hurt. So all was, all was good. Yeah, it was pretty good. Okay. Anyways. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, yeah, have a good day. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah. I'll go and start doing horse chores. So. <laughs>
Deal. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.